0: Hi, I'm Dr. Sonny Ravencourt from the University of Coruscant. And when I can't find reliable information for a lecture, I steal it from the Jedi Temple Archive podcast. Seriously, I do. Their security is terrible. There's like one old lady running the whole place.
1: This podcast is part of
0: the Red 5 Network. For more Red 5 Network podcasts, visit red5network.com.
1: There is more knowledge here than anywhere else in the galaxy. Only members of the Jedi Consul are allowed access.
0: Guarding the holocrons is one of the most important duties a Jedi can be given. Do you think you're up to the task?
1: to another episode of the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. I'm your host Rob and we are recording this episode on Thursday, October 15th, 2020. All right, so I am back once again with my trusty co-pilot Tom Howell and uh, that is highly appropriate for this episode since we're going to be talking about the fastest hunk of junk in the galaxy, the Millennium Falcon. Tom, welcome back. Great to be back on the Jedi Temple
0: Archives podcast, Rob. Mm -hmm. You know how much I love spending time here and, of course,
1: with you. Right. And uh, since we've both flown the Millennium Falcon together, it's all too appropriate that we're going to do this episode together.
0: That was pretty cool. I I have to say that was one of the highlights of our uh, journey's to uh, bat two together is our chances to pilot as a team the Millennium Falcon once.
1: I do not disagree. Uh, I do think uh, it'll be awesome when we get a chance to try to put the thing in Wookie mode, if that is still a possibility. Uh, but uh, I, I know that is uh, something we've been looking forward to for quite some time. It's just a matter of we can uh, push all the switches and hit all the buttons at the right right time and uh, get enough people to actually fill the cockpit with six people who are like minded. I think maybe in February we'll have a chance.
0: Yeah, I think between yourself, myself, our wives, and possibly Pat and Charles from the Conversations podcast, we may be able to at least attempt it. Getting it done is another question, but it'd be fun to give it a shot anyway.
1: I have a sneaking suspicion we'll be able to pull it off. But yeah, this is an episode that that I can't believe I haven't gotten around to before, episode 61. Uh, Certainly a, a character in its own right within the Star Wars franchise, probably the only uh you know non-human non-droid non-alien to actually be considered a character uh given that it has so much personality and uh, and is so integral to so many of the storylines
0: it's so unique it's just a unique ship you see a lot of these ships throughout the Star Wars universe that you see one X-wing i mean some of them are a little bit more stylized and you can tell the difference between them but they pretty much look the same tie fighters look extremely the same you know just to star destroyers everything else Uh, but the Millennium Falcon now I know there are other ships that are like it out there but you don't see them a lot and it's so it's got this plus you know with all the modifications on it it's pretty distinctive you know when the Millennium Falcon is on the screen
1: yeah absolutely and it uh, it is interesting because this is definitely one of the most heavily modified ships I think in all of Star Wars as well Uh, you know it's it's supposedly there's thousands and thousands of these uh, Carillion YT-1300 freighters floating around the universe. But uh, we really only see the Millennium Falcon, even when we catch a glimpse of that in uh, in episode three, kind of coming into land there at the Imperial uh, shipyard there uh, near the Senate. Um, You know, that was confirmed by George Lucas to actually be the Falcon, although this would have been prior to it being in the ownership of Han Solo. So, uh, you know, we don't really see any other YT-1300s within Star Wars.
0: No, I think that that's with a purpose. I mean, it'd be kind of what, why try and mess with people to think that that might be the Millennium Falcon in the background just yeah. let's say it is the Millennium Falcon out there but yeah Corellian um, ships they were famous shipbuilders. they built lots of these and lots of ships that do have somewhat of a similar shape to the Millennium Falcon they're based kind of on the same YT principle uh, but there really is only one Millennium Falcon let's
1: face it absolutely and uh, you know one of the interesting little tidbits about the Millennium Falcon if you get into the making of Star Wars uh, the book by J.W. Rinsler, Jonathan Rinsler, uh, is that you know he kind of it kind of goes into a lot of depth about the original design of the Millennium Falcon and kind of the process that Lucas worked through. Um, and the interesting thing about that is that originally it was set to look nothing like what we know the Millennium Falcon to be today. It was uh, a design that that eventually morphed into the uh, the Rebel blockade runners, the Corillian corvettes like the Tantive IV that we see uh, at the beginning of, of A New Hope. And uh, it turned out that 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 design was a little bit too close to some ships that had appeared in the movie Space 1999, and Lucas decided he had to go another direction with that. And lo and behold, he gets his epiphany for the most popular ship in Star Wars, arguably, from uh, a burger that he had taken a bite of and set down on a plate next to an olive on a on a toothpick.
0: Totally makes sense why it looks the way it looks, right? You're looking at a burger. <laughs> There's the millennium falcon right there in front of you. You took one big bite out of it. It's sort of round with a little side piece off of this. It's perfect. It's just hilarious where the insight, where these this creative process comes from, from so many of these uh wonderful creative people in and out inside and outside of Star Wars.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, certainly Lucas was known to love a a good burger. Uh, actually he was sitting, I believe in the same burger joint, uh, the day that star Wars came out in the theater and uh, they could see all the people lined up in front of man's Chinese theater. It wasn't really supposed to be carrying the movie. Uh, and, and he, and the folks that he was having lunch with, were trying to see what all the hubbub was about because the line was wrapped around the block. And lo and behold, it's his picture, uh, beginning what, you know, at the time they couldn't possibly have known was going to be something that was really going to change movies for, for all time, really.
0: No, I mean, there was no idea out there that this film was going to be to, you know, basically change fandom as it is and, and change the world of the filmmaking in so many different ways just all started from this. And how could you imagine? You're, you're there, you're just, you, as it was, you were struggling to get this film into theaters. You had to bargain with people, uh, you know, saying that we won't let you show this one film if you don't watch, put Star Wars in there as well. So how can you expect them to be lined around the block to see this movie? So, uh, you know, pretty fascinating.
1: Yeah. And, uh, thankfully we were both around when the film initially came out. I don't think either of us were there for opening day, but, uh, certainly that summer, uh, we were, we were swept up in that whole sensation and, and it was a great time to be a kid. And, uh, it's one of those things that allows us here 40 some years later to still kind of be kids every time we see it. So, uh, it's a beautiful thing in the Millennium Falcon is certainly sitting right at the core of that.
0: Yeah. And really, I mean, there's so many interesting characters within Star Wars itself. You brought this up at the, the lead of the show. You, you know, you you talk about you know Han Solo and Princess Leia and Luke and even the droids. You know, they're not supposed to be living or you know, but they do have a life of their own. But so does this ship. And does it have a brain? Well, yeah, I guess it does. As a Matter of fact, it seems like it has three brains. Yeah. But uh, you know, it's not really a a speaking character in any way but yeah it is as much a character in these films as Chewbacca or or Han or Luke or any of the others and when you see it on the screen i can remember you know when the force awakens you know we didn't get to see it outside of the very quick glimpse you were talking about in revenge of the sith you didn't get to see uh, the William falcon throughout the prequels and when you first get that glimpse of it in The Force Awakens, it took your breath away. You were so excited to see the Millennium Falcon, one of your favorite characters back on the screen again.
1: Yeah, and to your point, I mean, that is one of the things that Star Wars was always wonderful at was taking these characters that were not human, that, you know, it's one thing to have someone dressed up as an alien. There's still a person uh, driving that character and emoting. And you could certainly say that's true of the droids. Uh, Many of the droids within Star Wars, either back, you know, in the good old days when it was Kenny Baker jammed at R2-D2 and, uh, you know, Anthony Daniels wedged into his C-3PO outfit. But, you know, now even with the most motion capture, there's still some human driving that. And to a lesser degree, even with Yoda, with Frank Oz, you know, operating him from below the stage, there's a human uh, driving that. But but with the Falcon, it is just purely this mechanical thing, and yet they still find a way to give this ship a personality that is so distinctively its own. Uh, and, you know, certainly with the uh, the incorporation as you mentioned of L3's brain uh, navicomputer into the Falcon, um, and there's a couple as you mentioned, there's a couple other components that go into that ship's computer uh, kind of prompting C-3PO to talk about what a particular or peculiar dialect the ship had, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, even... C-3PO, c-3po was able to recognize it had its its own personality and unfortunately for han and the other owners of the falcon that personality would tend to act up at all the worst possible times
0: yeah it it seems like they had uh, more trouble with that ship than any other ship as a matter of fact i think i saw somewhere when doing the research for this that there was a stat online that would break up some it would it would tend to need maintenance like or the, the hyperdrive would fail like 1.22 more times than <laughs> a, a ship of a, a similar nature than any other yep. ship out there.
1: So yeah, that YT-2400, I think, from Rebels, right?
0: Right. So it obviously needed so much extra work on it constantly, and that is because of the various modifications that many owners put into the ship, but especially Han and Chewie when they were uh, doing so much work smuggling and pulling off a lot of things uh, across the galaxy.
1: Right. So you know kind of going back into the to the pre-story of uh, of the ship before we really get to know it within the films uh, it was a light freighter uh, and it began its life as basically a tug ship uh, moving cargo around at various dockyards and that's what those front mandibles were for they would kind of uh, position the cargo between those front mandibles and it would be able to push that around and it had a very powerful engine as a result of needing to move that cargo uh, I don't know that that necessarily makes a ton of sense everything's weightless in space right but uh for the purposes of the story that's that's the direction they went with it and that's kind of one of the reasons that when Lando got his hands on it you know he recognized that powerful engine had a lot of potential uh and uh you know upgraded any number of components on the ship and kind of turned it into his own little special uh starship including adding that uh that life pod that we see them jettison in solo so Short-lived, uh, that little component was. Uh, but the other interesting thing that, uh, that I had read, kind of looking into this a little bit, was that it began its life uh, just really with, uh, with an operating number. Uh, much like many of the stormtroopers, right? It was the YT-492-727Z uh, was, its, was its designation. Eventually, uh, kind of during the Clone Wars, uh, it was picked up by a group called the Republic Group. And uh they were the ones that initially registered it with the formal name, and that was the uh, Stellar Envoy. So it was not always the Millennium Falcon. It did have uh, you know, it did have some backstory to it prior to coming into the possession of Lando, as we see in Solo. And kind of one of the interesting things about that is that it was really Lando who took this ship, which had actually been scrapped at one point, um, due to a collision with uh with a cargo freighter. And heavily modified it completely restored it when we see that pristine millennium falcon in uh in solo a star wars story that was basically all the result of lando just basically recreating that ship and making it his own
0: in that version of the millennium falcon i mean let's just face it that shouts lando it's sleek you know even filling in with the uh with the escape pod in the in between the mandibles there to make that a much more clean look it's clean there's the Cape Room. Which is <laughs> oh, that like wasn't the, standard equipment on it. <laughs> right, <laughs> it didn't have come with a Cape Room right out of Corellia. Right. Uh, you, know, it, it, you know, it had a, a wet bar in the middle of it. You know, with the sound system, it was so Lando. It was perfect.
1: Yeah, and. It
0: was uh, neat. Not like Han, when Han and Chewie had it, you know, you see all these stains on the wall. It was pristine inside when Lando
1: walked It was so jarring to see that, too. I, You know, that was one of the things that jumped out at me when I was watching Solo in the theater was just to see that ship so pristine on the outside. And then you walk in and all the padding is just this glistening white uh as opposed to that you know dirty uh, aged yellow that we see within most of the films um you know it kind of immediately makes your brain go to oh my god what did they do to the ship to to turn it into this you know wreck basically uh as luke says what
0: a piece of junk right yeah and it, you know we know that when han and, and chewie eventually took it over from lando that they continue to work on this ship to fix it up. And we saw that, you know, actually within Solo itself, the devastation that the Millennium Falcon kind of went through to get through the Kessel Run. I mean, it was pretty banged up after that. So it already needed to have some serious work done on it. Han and Chewie get it, and they just add a whole lot of new tricks and interesting portions to it to kind of help in what their goal is uh, to kind of work their way through the galaxy as well. I'm sure you'll talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I
1: was interested because I I had always thought that the, um, you know, I'll start off with the sensor dish that is one of those iconic components, that round uh, sensor dish that we see on top of the Falcon that gets ripped off during the Battle of Endor, and uh, you know, I'd always I'd always thought that was something that was added by Han or maybe even Lando, but it turns out that that was actually that actually predated Lando's possession of it. Um, and they call it a rectenna, which I think is hilarious because it's the if there's you know one thing that it's not, it's rectangular. Uh, but I think that's more in reference to the fact that the original uh, part for that particular ship was rectangular, and that was actually. What got installed on the on the Falcon after that um, that round sensor dish got ripped off uh, was the rectangular uh, sensor dish that was stock on that ship originally.
0: Yeah, and it makes sense that they would have, uh, you know, when when we talk about, you mentioned the Republic group, which owned it as the stellar envoy for some point. And that is a, we don't know a lot about that group. Yeah. Um, there is some speculation that the Jedi may have had something to do with that, but that is all complete speculation or legends. Right. Um, we don't really know for sure what the, what the facts are behind it, but it would kind of make a little sense that it was running some little kind of behind the scenes missions back there and they would need this antenna that could, you know, tell them what was out there so they can uh, go around some of these issues that might occur. Some of these uh, people that might get in the way of them trying to uh, accomplish these missions.
1: Yeah. And it was, I mean, that was like a military grade piece of equipment, right? So that would detect other ships well before they could detect the Falcon, which again, you know, Han always liked to kind of boast that he never backed down from a, from a fair fight, but you know, as a smuggler, I think the, uh, the main goal there is to get your cargo where you need, where you need to get it. And uh certainly to have the ability to avoid uh, any Imperial entanglements. You know, if they, if they were to run into those, would be preferable to an all-out battle. Although, you know, we clearly see that they're uh, quite skilled in a battle if it comes to that.
0: Yeah, and that was one of the things that uh, really drew him um, to the ship or drew them all to the ship is that the fact that it was this really fast ship, one of the fastest ships you'll find.
1: On Solo, I'm Captain of the Millennium Falcon. Chewie here tells me you're looking for passage to the Alderaan system. Yes, indeed. If it's a fast ship, fast ship, you've never heard of the Millennium Falcon. Should I have? It's a ship that made the Kessel Run in less than twelve parsecs. I outrun Imperial starships, not the local bulk cruisers, mind you. I'm talking about the big Corillian ships now. She's fast enough for
0: you, old man. It was so fast and so maneuverable for a little bit larger ship, but it was also very sturdy and had the weapon power on it of some of the, uh, the really bigger ships, the capital class ships out there. So not only was it maneuverable and super fast, but it was also very strong in a fight. It could, it could really battle against uh, virtually anything out
1: there. Yeah. Uh, actually one of the funny things about the Falcon, um, and I don't know that a lot of people necessarily are aware of this, if they're just kind of casual viewers of the movie, but there was always a disconnect between, uh, a new hope and then uh empire strikes back when it came out because in a new hope the falcon only has three landing struts uh and in empire strikes back it has five and so there was always kind of this you know what's the story behind that and that's part of what solo gives us when han solo uh pulls that maneuver where he puts out the landing the landing gear and uh basically scrapes it across the the surface of the meteor or whatever they were going over uh, to take out the TIE fighters behind him, he rips off two of those landing struts. And that was kind of uh, a little bit of a, uh, you know, retro <laughs> callback to, to what <laughs> I- the difference was between those two films. Uh, clearly, you know, once uh, Han joined the rebellion, they helped him get it back up to snuff.
0: Well, and he was always working on it because of the fact that he added so many different things, components to it uh, throughout his years of owning it. You know, to boost the shield, uh, to make the cargo holds where you could not uh, find them with a scanner, you know. So there was so many different things that went into it. And that is part of the reason why they always needed so much work, why you always saw Chewie, especially, and Han, yes, Having to work on this ship because they added so many different pieces that weren't stock for this ship that, you know, they they didn't necessarily quite mesh. So they kind of always had to tinker with them to make sure that they worked as best they possibly could.
1: Yeah. And I was kind of, you know, I guess in my own head, I kind of figured the other reason they didn't like to have other people working on the ship is just because. It did look like such a piece of junk, right, that that uh, I think one of the biggest advantages they had is that people would take a look at that ship and automatically assume it wasn't a threat, automatically assume it wasn't going to be able to outrun them, outgun them, outfight them. Uh, So, uh, you know, they basically were able to keep their cards close to the vest, which, you know, as a as a big time Sabacc player, that was something that Han would have been pretty careful about, I think
0: it was a little bit you know when they actually ended up fighting with rebellion it's like okay now you pretty much know when you see the millennium falcon because it does stand out out there among any other ship you know you can see a random x-wing and you're say okay that's an x-wing probably with the rebellion but that could be any pilot in there it could be wedge it could be you know it could be any of them um, it doesn't necessarily have to be Luke, but you pretty much knew when the Millennium Falcon was flying by, that's probably hot and yeah. chewy in there. That's not just a random oh, YT somewhere. I mean, who knows? Maybe people did think that in, throughout the galaxy. I mean, it, we, it was a big galaxy. We know that not everybody knew everything that was going on um, with various... Um, characters throughout, including like the Jedi, many people had no idea that the Jedi even existed. Right. Uh, so maybe they didn't know about the Millennium Falcon, but they definitely became much more noteworthy than they were before the Battle of Yavin. That's
1: for sure. Yeah, there would have definitely been legends floating around about them that uh, the people would have heard, and certainly within uh, you know going back to to Han winning. The Falcon from Lando, Uh, you know, the story that they told in Solo was definitely a departure from what had come before that, Um, you know, back in what is now Legends, Han had basically played a Sabacc tournament, uh, beat all comers, essentially, and then the the main prize was that he was going to get a pick, a ship out of Lando's shipyard. Uh, and the Falcon was Lando's personal ship, but it did not look the way it looked in Solo. It was, you know, it was more the beat up version of the Falcon. Uh, and it was that way specifically because Lando wanted people to down, you know, to, to make the assumption that it wasn't a very good ship. And Han was uh, smart enough to pick up on that and uh, selected that ship and and clearly set Lando off, which I think, you know, is for me I think it was a little bit more fun a uh, backstory and and would have played more into the reaction that he got from Lando in Empire Strikes back although uh, you know certainly after what he did to the Millennium Falcon in, in the uh, in the events of solo basically wrecking it um, and then you know later, Stealing that uh, that skifter card from Lando uh, during the tournament and kind of keeping keeping him from winning the big pot at the end. Uh, You know, it's certainly a serviceable story, but, you know, there are some things within Legends, I think, that, uh, you know, I was sad to see them do away with and, and certainly provided a lot of fun backstory to some of these characters.
0: Yeah, and that, that is a very interesting one, and it makes total sense as well. I, I have no problem with what uh, took place what uh, in Solo itself mm-hmm. and how they decided to tell that story in a different way. Of course, if you had known for many years uh, about the tournament, and you know, and, and that was so you were kind of hoping and expecting that that's how it would play out in solo, but obviously they had a different story to tell there. Um, and that was part of the reason why a lot of, of the expanded universe did end up going into Legends because uh, Lucasfilm wanted to be able to tell their own stories, not just have uh, uh, many other writers uh, out there telling stories for them. So um, they decided that this is the best way for us to tell it, and it works as well as possible for us. Um, you know, hey, um, I'm a fan of Solo. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think it's it's it, it really took a hit uh, during its time and it, it really was unfortunate that it it died so much in the box office itself. Yeah. But I think more people have picked it up, uh, you know, whether it be on digital or now on Disney Plus or wherever it is, have realized and maybe, you know, they didn't get to see it in the theater, that it is a pretty good film. Is it a perfect film? Not by any stretch of the imagination. But it is a fun, entertaining ride, and I think the storytelling in it, um, for the most part, makes sense.
1: Yeah, I think probably that film, more than any other in the Disney era, uh, was the victim of things that had nothing to do with the film itself. Um, There was a lot of issues within the fan community at the time, and a lot of fallout from Last Jedi, and how polarizing that was, and a lot of that poured into... Uh, into the the turnout for Solo within the theaters. And, you know, I went and saw it in the theater. I didn't have any problems with it. Uh, I thought uh, that uh, the acting was well done. I thought that the story was a lot of fun. Uh, I love the fact that we now know you can boot a starship. So... (laughs) (laughs) It's nice to know that, you know, if you don't, they're going to make you pay those fines one way or the other, unless you got Tobias Beckett there and uh, Chewbacca to help you get the thing out of, out of gridlock. Right. So, um, but you mentioned a little bit about some of the upgraded equipment that they had on this particular ship. And certainly when you think of the Falcon, you think of the fastest hunk of junk in the galaxy. And that was due to what was essentially a class one military hyperdrive. Um, that they had done some modifications or had some modifications done on to, to make it a 0.5 class, uh, hyperdrive, which basically means it was twice as fast, uh, through hyperspace as any of the Imperial ships. So that alone, uh, you know, it kind of makes me wonder why more ships didn't go for that. Um, (laughs) but, uh, again, Han Solo, there's a lot of backstory to that. There's a lot of stories about how that got modded. Um, unfortunately not many of them in Canon these days. Uh, But, you know, there were uh, friends of Han Solo on Nar Nar Shaddaa that that he would go to for some of his modifications, and uh, that was basically the Smuggler's Moon uh, surrounding the hut home planet of uh, of Nel Hutta. So, I think that some of that stuff would be fun to bring back into canon, uh, but not really appropriate for what we got right now, so... Uh, And then the other thing that you mentioned with regard to the weaponry and the armament and everything, as you said, I mean, they did have the Duralloy hull plating that basically gave it a hull that was as strong as most of the capital class ships. And yet they have engines that make it as agile and fast as a, as a starfighter. So it really was the best of both worlds. And we see that kind of at the end of the rise of Skywalker, where you've got Poe wanting to go to the rescue of Finn and Janna on that uh, collapsing Star Destroyer and Lando just blows right by him in the Falcon.
0: Yeah. The one thing about the Falcon, you know, obviously the size was a, it was an issue for it, you know, as far as trying to get through some of these smaller places we saw, you know, during the battle of Endor it trying to basically get through the, uh, the, the, second death star there and nearly not make it. Yeah. As a matter of fact, that's where it t- knocked off that uh, antenna that we were discussing earlier, right. but it, it still considering its size, it was amazing how fast and how maneuverable it would be. It, would, it was easily as maneuverable as an X-wing know um, maybe not obviously as a TIE fighter, but it can move and shift and still fire um, with amazing gunpowder, gun power, <laughs> firepower, um, no gunpowder. I don't think
1: <laughs> they're out there packing no, the barrels and no zero. <laughs> I don't think there
0: was a lot of gunpowder flying around firepower that would, uh, could rival any ship that right. are, are, many of the ships out there.
1: Yeah. And actually the, you know, the most distinctive weapon on that ship was those quad, the dual quad lasers, the one on top and the one on the bottom, the ventral and the dorsal uh, lasers. And one of the cool things that I think a lot of people miss in the movies is that when you see, uh, Han and Luke kind of taken the ladder to those gun ports that the gravity shifts when they get actually into the gun port itself. So uh, you see them going up and down the ladders, but when they get into the gun port, all of a sudden they're sitting on what would have essentially have been the wall uh, and looking straight up or straight down and, and able to move the guns around that way. So you do pick up on a little bit of that. They did a really cool job of shooting that uh, within especially in new hope. Um, and that is something that I think a lot of people miss when they watch the film.
0: Yeah, it's it's it gotta feel like when you were to go and climb down uh to the bottom turret, that that feeling of it suddenly move your whole thing shifting upward, yeah. it had to be a little strange right. for you. They made your stomach turn a little bit, you know, when that first happened. But I mean, when you look at the Millennium Falcon, you look for many of the Star Wars ships for that matter. Obviously, there is a some sort of device that gives them gravity. You can walk around the ship. You're not floating around the ship, even though you're out there in deep space. Uh, But this ship had that ability to no matter where you were when when you went into those turrets, you felt like you were right up. And I believe that uh, something similar to that was in within the Death Star itself as well, yeah. that they had that, uh, as, at some point in that some of the, um, uh, not elevators, I'm sorry. turbo lifts, yeah. turbo lifts, thank yeah. you. Um, that they would actually have to kind of go through that too. Like you be if you'd be turbo lifting from one part of the Death Star to the other part of the Death Star that was maybe facing downward, that that would have to there would be that shift within yeah. it as well so um really cool stuff and interesting you know how does that work i don't know but it works within star wars and that's good enough for me
1: <laughs> they had uh, special medicine for space vertigo right
0: yeah, right. I, know. I, I have a little bit of air sickness that, that I think that would really be
1: problems there would have to be some sort of bag within those turbo lifts or within that
0: for me. Tonya.
1: Again, I'm just, uh, it would be fun to do, but, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think that there would potentially have to, we're going to have to believe that space medicine has, uh, has progressed far enough, um, well, I guess this was all a long time ago, right? In a galaxy far, yeah. far away. So apparently, they've already fixed this problem, and we're just stuck with it here. Um,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Get Out there, in a galaxy far, far away, so we can get rid of all motion sickness.
1: We're just gonna have to settle for bad too. So. Uh, so, yeah. In addition to the, the quad lasers that they had, they also had concussion missile tubes, which you don't really see them using a whole lot within the films. Uh, but the one thing that we do get to see, especially right there in a new hope is the blast deck, uh, ground buzzer blaster cannon that pops out kind of as they're, uh, getting ready to escape in empire strikes back. I believe there in the ice cave on Hoth where that thing pops out and takes out some of the stormtroopers.
0: Yeah, it's just kind of a a defense mechanism that helps them uh, get away, give them enough time to get away if they're being attacked from the ground. So um, just uh, one more modification that uh, Han added to the ship to kind of get done what they need to get done.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and uh, and it's interesting to note that the uh, Falcon actually had three different shield generators, uh, two on the front and then one on the rear to protect the ship. So that seems like overkill, but, uh, once again, it goes back to your earlier point about the fact that this thing had the defense capabilities, uh, equivalent to what would be essentially capital ships, uh, as opposed to a light freighter, uh, which is what it was classified as.
0: Yeah. I mean, they just, you know, Han knew the trouble that he was going to run into possibly, you know, obviously he wanted to avoid it at all costs if he could, but, you know, it's smuggling is a dangerous game. And so you want to be sure that, one, you have a fast ship, a strong ship, a ship that can see when things are coming ahead of you. And a lot of these modifications, either they came with the ship ahead of time or he added throughout it. And, uh, you know, and it was mostly there to make sure that the job that they did uh, would be, be able to be performed uh, to the utmost uh, of its capability.
1: Tom's explanation there was so good that a light shone down on him from above, right in the middle of it. Nice <laughs> little bit. Come in and decide that I need a little more light. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, So, yeah, uh, the other thing that I think we we have to talk about is, as you mentioned, the fact that the Falcon, you know, the Falcon's uh, computer system was made up of those three droid brains. And we we do see L3 uh, get integrated into the ship. But on top of that particular droid brain, there was also a V5 transport droid brain that got integrated into the Falcon's computer, uh, as well as um, uh, what was the other one? I think it was a slicer droid.
0: Yeah. Uh, there were, what was there, three droid uh, brains within it altogether, yep. L3 being the last of the ones yep. added, which is pretty much uh, what, what it ends up being the navigation yep. uh, device that they use pretty much when they try and jump to hyperspace. I and mean, that, that is what uh, kind of affects it. So, yeah. And, uh, the, you know, interesting stories of, uh, you know, that they don't exactly, all the brains within the Millennium Falcon don't exactly always get along with one another. So, you know, one more thing to go wrong in the Millennium Falcon. You know, you're already having some of the uh, different modifications acting up on there. But even, the, you know, the, the brain of the Millennium Falcon itself is having some trouble
1: with one another <laughs> yeah I've seen some excerpts of uh some of the some of the events that kind of took place as they were trying to integrate L3 into the into the Falcon's computer and uh you know she kind of felt like she was being tricked into it and and the Falcon's computer was basically saying look you got two options uh either you do this and they live or you don't do this in the ship and uh and Lando are going to be destroyed and certainly L3 and her affection for Lando caused her to to choose that, to, uh, to go forward with that integration and as part of why she became part of that computer.
0: Yeah. I mean, when it was all said and done, that's, that's what it came down to. I mean, I, you know, there had to be some sort of, you know, I mean, let's, let's face it. L3 was a bit of a different droid as she had a definite personality, you know, and one that was always seemed to be trying to fight the establishment and, you know, fighting for droids rights. And, This was, you know, just being, hey, you're just going to go ahead and put me into this ship. That's not really a place (laughs) with her thoughts on what droids rights should be. But when it's all said and done, yeah, her affection for Lando was what the catalyst to go ahead and agree to this situation. Yeah.
1: Um, So, you know, that pretty much does it for the the details on the Falcon itself. Uh, It is interesting to note that, you know, the Falcon is definitely the ship that is associated with one of my favorite pieces of music within Star Wars, which is, uh, you know, that TIE fighter uh, fight scene that we see within A New Hope. carries over into uh the theme that John Williams actually put together for the Millennium Falcon within the Force Awakens there's some notes of that some notes of the uh the rebel fanfare uh that is very popular as well and it even carried forward into that uh battle that we see where the falcon arrives in the last jedi It is kind of cool to note that this is one of the characters within Star Wars uh, that was recognized as a character by John Williams, and he actually created a theme for this particular ship.
0: Yeah, and it makes total sense. I mean, I, I think we all agree that uh, Millennium Falcon isn't just uh, another Uh, piece, another prop out there. Even though, you know, it's mostly a model or uh, CG throughout all the movies. It really is a character that we know and love very much and are are always thrilled when we get to see the Millennium Falcon pop up on stage. Part of the reason why, um, you know, it's the centerpiece of Batuu, the centerpiece of uh, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, and that everybody's got to get that picture in front of the Millennium Falcon. I posted uh, up on Facebook, I was uh, changing up my my banner picture out there, and it was—I uh, was trying to figure out what I was going to put up there. I and mean, looking through my pictures, and it just recalled back to the day where it was uh, the second day of the opening of uh, Star Wars: Galaxy's Edge at Disneyland, and uh, Michelle and myself getting out there and getting a picture in front of the Millennium Falcon, and then what a glorious day that was! Because it was us getting—it was a character meet and greet. Right. It was a picture with one of our our favorite characters from the Star Wars universe.
1: Sponsored by Kleenex many tears i think have been shed by many star wars fans in front of that ship um and you know certainly as as people that have visited numerous times uh galaxy's edge i think it goes without saying that no matter what the crowd level is in galaxy's edge the one place you can always guarantee that you're going to find people there is right there in front of the falcon getting their pictures taken
0: yeah and by the way a great tip for someday whenever it may be when disneyland opens up again and someday whenever it may be that they're again doing fireworks spectaculars uh a great spot to watch the fireworks with a, just a wonderful ambiance is uh to go just kind of uh, there's that little rise where you go up the steps and then there's docking bay seven food and cargo mm-hmm. and there's that railing outside of it there yep. overlooking the millennium falcon go there uh, just lean against that railing about 15, 20 minutes before the fireworks begin. And you get this great view of the fireworks going up above the spires, mm-hmm. right above the Millennium Falcon. It is a wonderful and just a cool, especially for a Star Wars fan, cool place to watch the fireworks spectacular.
1: Yeah, and within Walt Disney World as well. I mean, you can definitely see some of the some of the fireworks there. Um, but. Uh, one of the interesting things about how they did Galaxy's Edge, and we've talked about this before, is that while it has a lot of the same components, that uh, a lot of the coloring of, of the rock work and, you know, kind of the theming of some of the, the areas around there are done differently. So uh, certainly even without fireworks, just the way they light up that land at night and the way they light up the Millennium Falcon uh, is really impressive to see. And, you know, certainly if you have not had a chance to visit either of the Disney parks here in the United States Uh, And to visit more specifically Galaxy's Edge, we would recommend that because uh, being able to get in the Falcon, to climb into that cockpit, to uh, undertake a mission for everyone's favorite rogue that's not Han Solo. Good old Hondo Onaka, right? Um, Right. I should have brought uh, Pat and Charles on to to do the voice for us.
0: (laughs) Ah, that is where you are wrong, Chewbacca. This used to be Han Solo's ship. I am the captain now. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. (laughs) (laughs) Ha-ha! Oh, just find me more coaxium.
1: And if you're not familiar with Hondo, you definitely got to go check out, I think it was episode two uh, of JTA where Tom and I uh, had talked a little bit about Hondo and some of the other characters within Galaxy's Edge as well. So check that out. But yeah, uh, it's one of those amazing things about going to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge is that you can actually walk through the Falcon. You can have your picture taken. Uh, kind of in that uh, entertainment bay of the Falcon where they've got the Dejarik table and where the Porgs have been nesting and then uh, basically get an opportunity to fly that ship yourself uh, in pretty impressive fashion.
0: Yeah, Chewbacca's Dejarik table, by the way. I I didn't know. I didn't know until I was doing the research that it was Chewbacca that asked for that to be added because he's such a great player. He doesn't cheat. (laughs) Oh, maybe he does cheat all the time, but you know, even though he's being blamed for cheating all the time, apparently he's just really good at playing that game. So he wanted it there for a little bit of fun, but. Um, one of the things about uh, the Millennium Falcon, Millennium Falcon Smugglers run that I wish and I, I love the you know, actual attraction itself, getting in there, getting in the cockpit, you know, performing whatever task it is uh, within the Millennium Falcon. But just getting in that room and looking around, I really wish we, you had a little more time in right. there because I just start to get looking and it seems like they're calling up your team, your group to go in there. I would really I could sit there and explore that little room um, for hours, I think, because there's so many, they did such a great job of, of decking it out.
1: They did. Kim always tells me that, uh, that she thinks that they missed an opportunity to have a photo pass photographer in there, uh, so that, you know, different groups can get their picture taken at the chess table, the, the Dejar table that we were just talking about. Um, and it makes a lot of sense to me. I, I kind of hope that they do that at some point in the future. Cause Unfortunately, there are groups that get in there and they kind of sit down as a place to just hang out while they're waiting to get their chance to fly the Falcon. And uh, even if you're not, you know, usually you've got to have someone in your party take a picture or you've got to hand off your phone to someone else to take the picture. And I think they could definitely streamline that by adding a photo pass photographer in there that would uh, kind of keep people moving and make sure everyone has the opportunity to get that picture. But as you pointed out, there's still plenty to look at. Um, every once in a while the the alarms will start going off and uh, someone's got to find the correct button to push so that's always uh, always fun to see people scrambling for that as well but if you have not had a chance to check that out i mean uh, it's it's hard to describe you get you get a amazing kind of uh, view from above the ship as you're going through the you know the dock area there and then once you actually get on board uh, the feeling of actually walking into something that you've only seen in a film is uh pretty indescribable
0: yeah, just walking down the corridor uh leading into that uh, sort of main complex area, the living quarters of the Millennium Falcon there is it, it's pretty when you when you do it for the first time as a Star Wars fan, it's pretty overwhelming, yes. you know. I mean, just to see this thing that you've been seeing in the the films for so long come to life. It's it's pretty amazing. But yes, they um the view of the Millennium Falcon from so many different angles as you're in that docking area um, it's, the, the detail work they've done on it. it I mean, they didn't, they didn't miss an inch on it as far as, um, little scorch marks and different antenna and all sorts of different interesting things to look at. I could stare at it for, I have for yeah. a long time. Yeah.
1: And I'm sure there's still things that we've missed. So, uh, fortunately we've got an opportunity coming up in February to do that once again. So we're looking forward to that. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. I'm sure we won't be on here talking about it before or afterwards and uh until then i guess we're just gonna have to settle for for hanging out on skype and talking star wars in the uh in the interim
0: hey whatever we can do we just uh, having some fun <laughs> until we can get out there and have that february trip i know you have a a journey out to batu coming up here very shortly i'm excited yeah. for you on that and uh eventually we're going to get out there somewhere in 2021 early 2021 and um uh, it's going to be thrilling as it always is.
1: Awesome. Well, Tom, thank you once again for joining me to talk a little bit about the Millennium Falcon. Certainly folks, if you are interested in dropping us a line and uh, letting us know what parts of the Falcon or what scenes with the Falcon are your favorites, definitely do. So you can just drop that to our email at JTA podcast at uh, But I'm going to go ahead and let Tom drop the information on where he can be found with his wife at the Hyperion adventures podcast.
0: Thank you. Yes, I do do a separate podcast. Although I love being on the Jedi Temple Archives podcast, I do uh, do a Disney-focused podcast with my beautiful wife, Michelle. We do talk Star Wars. We do also talk Marvel. We talk mostly about Disney and Disney parks. And if you ever want to find us, uh, you can... uh, Pretty much track us down anywhere that you get podcasts. over. the very best place to find us is on our own website, Uh We also have a YouTube channel. You can do a search for Hyperion Adventures Podcast. will come up. Most of our episodes are on there. We just uh, videotape them. So if you prefer to watch people speak rather than just listen to them, you can see uh, how great my wife looks and how goofy I am. Uh, we also follow us on social media. We're both active on social media. We're on Twitter at Hyperion Podcast and Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest at Hyperion Adventures Podcast.
1: Awesome. And you can find us, as I said, uh, JTApodcast.com is probably the easiest place or at any of your podcatchers. Uh, you can shoot us an email at JTApodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we've kind of reduced our social media footprint. We are right now only on Twitter at Podcast. And you can find our Pinterest board at JTA Podcast as well. So uh, I think that's going to wrap it for us. Tom, once again, thank you for coming on. And uh, for the rest of you, hope you guys all have a wonderful week. And may the Force be with you.